Welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Ryan Keeling and I'm the editor at Resident Advisor. LB Bad became the latest subject of Rush Hour's ongoing re-release series late last year and out of all of the producers they've covered so far, this one felt the most necessary. Lamont Booker was a respected and prolific figure on New York's house scene in the late 80s and early 90s, but his name was never written into the history books in the prominent place he perhaps deserved. Booker made an unplanned move to Berlin at the start of the 90s after being invited to the city by the guys behind Hardwax. He recorded with Basic Channel in their formative years, although only one of the tracks from those sessions ever saw the light of day. Booker has remained active in Berlin ever since, and it was there late last month that we met up to discuss early New York club culture, his work in radio, and his recent return to the limelight. read that you were quite the musician when you were growing up. I read that there were a multitude of uh, instruments and uh, areas of interest for you when you were growing up. I wondered if we could uh, start with that. Sure thing. Drummer. It's my original claim to fame. My original love. Um, which indeed started banging on pots and pans. My brother was a bassist and I took that and from there it went to guitar to keyboards. So you were playing in bands or? Uh, we started off the two of us and uh, as we grew older and tighter, uh, a set of brothers, also a drummer and a guitar player, and that became my first band. And for years we played. Okay, and are we still in kind of childhood here? Uh, teenager. I moved to Long Island about 13 and by 14 I was in the band. It was it was it was semi-professional at that age. Semi-professional. So you were you were playing. You were releasing records. We were, no, or? no, no. In the <laughs> way of performance, live performances, okay. we were doing uh, shows, weddings, parties, and uh, yeah, people paid. Oh, I see. And um, not that it's all about the money, but just for that age and that time, it was kind of amazing. And um, how would you describe the the style or the, the type of music? For today's year, I would say soul music. We played soul and uh, danceable soul. So you, so you grew up predominantly in Long Island. Uh, the Bronx was the childhood and um, teenage years off to Long Island, luckily. Okay. And um, how would you describe your, your upbringing? Was it my upbringing? A close family. Uh, from that, I jumped straight to no racial discrimination. Growing up in the Bronx, it uh, it had to be that way. It was such a mix of people, and uh, yeah, a lot of love, a lot of music. So going back to the the band situation and uh, you know the type of gigs you were playing, um, what eventually became of that project? Like, uh, we have the name Platinum Enterprise, and it's stuck for years. And uh, to show you our our level talent. In our high school years, and I say years, actually 
their high school years. I was in junior high. But we used to do like high school talent shows and they were um, prizes given. We weren't allowed to get a prize or to even take place in that because they said we were too good. So we were like the last act, a show, which was fair, unfair, but it was great. You know, it was like, uh, yeah, it was, it was that high. So did you kind of have big aspirations around that time? Did you, do you guys think you were going to the top? I, not, not to the top, never thought about the top, but uh, I actually used to vision albums with this band. And uh, my brother, an artist himself, he made a cover. And uh, yeah, it's still not out, but one day I'm seriously going to do it as so, the band. So nothing got committed to wax then? Not yet. Right, see, not yet. But the band, uh, as they were all older, this this story is quite amazing because it works many ways, but the musical way, I'll tell you, first anyway. As they grew older and started to recognize the realities of life after high school, me, still younger, was not seeing it that way. And they actually were saying the band has to stop just because of college, university. And it was a strange thing to see dreams die so, so early. Um, I mean, could you kind of comprehend where they were coming from? No, because it was a local, they were all going very local. And uh, even if they had, which they did, had rooms on campus, they were still close to home and always home weekends home so I didn't understand it but it was deeper and of course I couldn't understand it today I get it <laughs> um, yeah to have a dream age 17 18 and to think life starts or the adult life starts so my dreams uh, they just diminished and because well now it's time to get serious the love uh, the dream it wasn't serious. Mm. I mean, did you did you come around to their line of thinking? I mean, did it did stuff become more serious for you? Did you only in a way of understanding? Because for me, the dream stayed. It was always my dream to just play music and eat from it. Simple. So, is that side of things always stuck with you, or that that initial spark or dream, however you'd like to describe it? Um. Unconsciously, yes, because I never thought about it. I just, you know, was doing my thing. Often through the years, uh, literally crying for my brother. Whatever he touches with me is that much better. Till today. Um, and then the music side, what happened, I had to find something to do musically to entertain people. And uh, that the DJ thing, it was around the same time zone. And uh, DJs were, all, not always, but they were around already, but in a different, let's just say the early days, even before mixing, really. Just to put a sense of time in it, we're talking like 80s? 70s, late 70s. Um, Mid-70s. 70, I would say 75, 76, it had to be around this time, maybe even earlier, actually. Um, so that would have been the initial engagement with DJ exactly. culture. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, this was actually before because it wasn't really mixing yet. Um, my first time to acknowledge a DJ, my band was at a wedding, and uh, it was a wedding that I had negotiated. Uh, I don't. It was a few hundred dollars we got, and we had uh, rented a sound system, a PA, and it was kind of nice. And we had our own, so we had like two. You know, we bought in poof, very big wedding. And then they had a DJ also, and we played first. And I'll never forget this DJ. He, after we played and we was, it was loud, you know, people were dancing, it was the beginning, so it was, it was a party, started a party, it's a black thing, party. Um, he turned on his sound and it was like, doof, heard it, louder than my bass drum, wow. And the first song was Summer Madness, Cool in the Game. 
It was so powerful, so loud. <laughs> I remember he had bass bottoms. They were bigger than my bass drum. You know what I mean? Everything was just big. And the sound is what really took me. Being near the speaker and seeing the turntable far on the other side of the room, I couldn't understand <laughs> in a way. It was like the sound is so incredible and it's coming from that tiny needle way over there. Nothing like home stereo. You know what I mean? I have a record player. We know the needle. But this was just... It was another dimension. If you know this song, it comes in, I think it's first best drums and then like horn, string, big uh, opera, op operatic type thing. And then it just dropped. And it was like, it blew me away. I was like, I want to play behind that. I want that power. It was so just loud and powerful. It was, I have no word for that. You know, life-changing moment. Boom. That's when I knew headphones, you know what I mean? Turntables. So, obviously the band was still on, but as they dwindled, it was kind of the natural progression. What can I do alone and still perform? Because that was my love, performance. And, uh, yeah, it was a smooth, slow transition when I when I decided, I know it was still, I was in school, and I mean, during school time, and in the summer, my first summer job, it was all about turntables. That was my point for working. And uh, see, working for the dream from the start. <laughs> and I saved up all my money, and uh, yeah, two turntables. I couldn't afford the mixer for some reason. And yeah, for Christmas, this was summer, then that Christmas came, my mother bought my mixer. It was on. I was already mixing. Somehow, a friend's parties, somehow I was in it. And I was buying records. But, yeah, that next winter, Christmas time, never stopped. And my first time mixing on my own stuff, I couldn't mix. It was incredible. So what were some of your first public exploits as a, as a DJ? Uh, North Babylon, North Babylon. That's the town I'm from. And there, it's a party town. It's a hip-hop town. Um, the roots of hip-hop, a lot of it comes from my area. And when I say my area, Wine Dance and North Babylon sit side by side. And uh, I won't go too deep into it, but there's a long list of rappers that the common person knows. They're from that area. So it's party time. And when I say party time, this is hip-hop. We had no... Prejudice against beats per minutes, from slow to very fast, including that aggressive soul. We searched for underground music, whatever that meant, something different. And that's what moved people. And this party thing, uh, yeah, back to my beginning exploits, I slipped in for the love. You know, it was like, yo, I want to mix. And there was a place in Wine Dance itself uh, in the summertime. Saturdays, block parties, it was normal. And think of the Jamaican sound system type deal, and people party 12 to 12. And that's when the cops would come, stop, lights out, you know, stop the power. And in between, it was pretty peaceful, and nonstop underground music from Kraftwerk to Pointers Sisters to Cerrone, uh... Fast disco to slow hip hop beats, and you know, with the with both came MCs, and that's when the the rap industry grew out of that New York party vibe, and uh, yeah, there I was looking, dancing, and every you know, on the smaller parties, which include okay, we lived in suburbia, and in suburbia you can have a party in your backyard anytime you want, and every DJ would set up usually on Saturdays, Sundays. And we'd have like little parties. It, it depends, you know, people would come as they came. No announcement, no anything like that. People hear the music, you know, parties at his house today. And yeah, small, but it was all about dancing. And we would dance and people would mix all day. And in that, it was a friendly competition where if you bought records, you could play. And even if you didn't buy records, bring records, you could play. 
pretty much. It was like that. You know, it was among friends. This is the neighborhood, the hood. And uh, yeah, we all played. When I say we all, it was like a, a fad where everybody did it, which is the same. I think it happened all over the world years later. You know, like the average kid, I'm a DJ, I want to be. So that was uh, 70s. Um, I wonder when house music kind of first uh, registered on your radar. It's a very difficult question. Uh, I left New York in 1980. When I left New York, we had, I would say, the closest thing that you could call house, it was Latin hip hop. It was freestyle. Um, um, ah, um, um, ah, um. Noel, Silent Morning, these type. Um, in that environment, Latin hip-hop, again, referring to what we called hip-hop, the big scale. So they took and added that it had Latin flavor, but hip-hop, nothing to do with rap. It, it fit. That became freestyle. Somehow, somewhere in there, okay, even though I left New York, I wrote the story even before, uh, well, that was 88, but the, the story was evolving at this time. Um, as we danced and partied to what we called hip-hop, it did branch out at a time. And it, I remember from a DJ point of view, it started to go, you guys blend and you guys cut. And that was one avenue that it changed. So blend being house, disco, cut being hip hop. Right, right, okay. exactly. And um, so this also was a slow change. And me, I, I like both and I would never stop. It, it, you know, I couldn't understand, but I did prefer this, this newer music because the sounds were more extravagant, so to say. Techno is the word, electro. Um, yeah, also electro was already around before all of that, the, the, even the word. And from back again, as it broke off, people who were unaware called, said club music, not even dance music, club music, because it was played in the club. Now, the best club, Paradise Garage. We said garage music. Years later, UK took over that, and there was also the rock garage, so that didn't go far, but the style, and this is the record, the true story of House. The style, even as it got 4-4, we didn't have a name because it was like new disco. We didn't name it. This is New York. We didn't name anything. We didn't care. You know what I mean? One, here's, here's a category, hip-hop, all of that. That's it, whatever. And people went for it, eclectic. Years later, everything got categorized. Uh, blame it on the salespersons and managers and marketing strategists. Anyway, um, yeah, so this shift musically, it was always around and it was dance music. Bef I would say in my life, still pre-club, we had centers and, not, you know, clubs, I mean, dances at night, but not clubbing yet, um, halls and stuff, the rented things. Um, your raves years later, we were doing it as teenagers and... As the music shifted, the best way I could describe anything that had like, let's say it was kind of over one, somewhere around 110, 112 BPMs was kind of somehow a split. And of course, there was many in the middle, the electro as a whole. But uh, that split is what became house versus other for the sake of this interview. Um, yeah, it's... That word club music, even on the radio, they would say club music. And then the number one club was Paradise Garage. So the name Garage Music for the insiders. That sound moved to Chicago, you know. Same thing. The club. What club? Clubhouse. House music. They play house music. That's the word. So it's, yeah, that's, to me, that's the real evolution. And it, you know, I can't say even, let me go back. New York didn't name things. Chicago did label it, which had a lot to do with tracks, the record label. But um, the sound, yeah, 
as we, we had and we played music from everywhere with no prejudice. This was the point, you know what I mean, of not labeling it. So, uh, for example, in the garage, where garage music was played, Larry could, would drop E2, E4, run DMC. I've heard soccer MCs and uh, whatever's on the flip side, the more popular one, electro thing, in, in the garage. And people, you know, screaming. And then, of course, Normal House, Jamie Principal, and underground, whatever, whatever, sounds, you know. So, yeah, that was the whole thing. Speaking on the garage, it was like walking into a radio. And, I mean, a very big radio, and you're just in it. Sound. Like, wow. <laughs> a, you know, the old box, if you could walk in it. That was, yeah, more people should have that. Was the system as good as uh, people make out? Best in the world, still today. I have not heard better. Ministry of Sound London, close. Really. To my, I have not heard better. Why did you decide to start making this club music? No one's ever asked me that. Why did I start making club music? I think it had to do with, as a drummer, I first used to just play, chop up, bring up my skills. And then I remember I used to play on, on records, play the record, and it would start light, and then I would say, okay, go detail. You're going to get every roll, every snap, every every. You're going to hit it when they hit it. And I got kind of good at that, copying. And from then, that shift went into it had to be something else. And that something else was, yeah, okay, now you have to make something solid. Because, okay, as a drummer, when you're making up these beats, I never thought to record anything. It just wasn't, you know, any idea. We actually, I don't think we ever recorded our band. I don't think we ever recorded. Okay, on video, yeah. But anyway, um, so to to have that that uh, process from you know just playing out of your head without any anything from anybody you know just just me I didn't have uh, lessons in the early days and yeah then to copy what's on record especially records I like and I mean I went for some not easy records and uh, as the band simmered out at the same time drum machines i think were first to come into my house i think i wanted to buy a drum machine before synth i think i bought my first 303 before i bought synth yeah anyway so it was like yeah okay make your own drum sounds and from there my beats i would call it hip-hop today instrumental hip-hop and yeah kind of aggressive so meaning not so slow and as far as aggression but it would be like, yeah, breakbeats. But I don't want it because breakbeats is too fast. So it would be house without the 4-4. Kind of like a lot of my tracks today, as I think about it. But maybe not as fast somehow. I was in that 116, 118, one, maybe you hit 120, I think. And I, my first record, Just Don't Stop the Dance, I believe that's 114 or something like this. And yeah, it's a perfect example. That's what came out of that, those beats. It's not 4-4, but you wouldn't say it's hip-hop. So in today's genre, it's either, I wouldn't say acid jazz. I, I would say hip-hop, instrumental hip-hop, to have an understanding of categories. Yeah. And what did you feel like you were looking to add to this club music conversation? Like Something different. Always. That was, that was my thing. I, I wanted to hear or make what I, what I haven't heard. Yeah, that, that's the end of the equation. Creating your own plus copying others, getting it, equals making stuff you've never heard because you're satisfied with both. You know what I mean? Yeah, that makes sense. That's the equa equation. You started your own label quite quickly. Is, is that correct? Quite quickly because my first record deal, I got ripped off. <laughs> so I said the second one, I'll do it myself. Um, I was sitting at the time in Unique Distribution, which was selling 12 inches all over the world. So I even had the hot seat to do it. And uh, it was a question of money, which I'm not, uh, I hold no grudges. I don't say their names, but uh, the record company offered me, in contract, signed, $1,000 when the song was finished. 
the song was finished and uh, in the studio they both were and oh we don't have and 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 I started singing <laughs> there was no singing on this track I was talking and then they just started singing and I was like yo nah I'm not leaving until I'll just be in here and when I leave you might not be here so who knows what happens so they said okay 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 we'll muster up some money and they mustered up five you know first he said I'll write you a check actually I was like come on nah after he said he didn't have money I'll write you a check and then it went down to they came up with 500 cash gave it to me and that was it from from the finance and so for me I was like well this I might as well do it myself the only thing they did was somehow manufacture I can find out how so I did boom Laron Records, uh, two at once. And the hardest thing for me was to find money, which came from a friend who, he made, it was the deal, two for one. My sons want to do a record. We know you're producing a bit. I will give you money, because he had heard, you know, I put the word out, I need some cash. And uh, his sons, he they started working with me, and we made a hip-hop record, and I made This Dream Is Real. And as an engineer, I had no clue what I was doing. And to explain myself, hearing music in the garage or any big club has a boom to it. Naive little me took that boom sound and I said, I want my records or my songs to sound like this because I like it. I like what I'm hearing in the club. It's the best thing you can hear. Boom, you know what I mean? Boom. And in the studio, when you play a drum machine, it's not boom, it's or whatever. So reverb, boomed. And I boomed both these records. Uh, yeah, I thought it sounded great. I really did. <laughs> and of course, I didn't have a chance or have the knowledge to try it out in the club. Yeah, tonight I'll try it out in the club. No, there was no try it out in the club. It was nothing like that. And it was even home stereos. We're listening to this stuff on. We're making it on. So, um, yeah, uh, everybody seemed it was okay. Nobody knew, you know what I mean, including the executive producer. He had no idea. The hip-hop record was just as boomy. Not as boomy, actually. It was a little bit quieter. And, uh, yeah, Minds, I boomed it out and took the money, manufactured two records, the engineer who mastered it, he was like asking questions. <laughs> he was the first one. He was like, he was a Jamaican guy. <laughs> yeah, blood. But take you got too much echo and things down, you know. I can't tune it down. <laughs> and yeah, it was like that. I was like, no, no, that's how we want it. And, 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 and he was like, mm. he said, I could imagine him like he's more dubby than King Tubby. Lord forgive him, for he know not what he do. I didn't. But uh, it has two sides. It's, it's a good thing and it's a bad thing. On one side, especially the UK, these DJs who bought Laron 26, this stream is real, they loved it, they played it, it charted. I was shocked. Not because of that, but just the fact, hey, I just put this record out, there's no promotion. You know what I mean? And it's in England, it's like kicking. Wow. Thousand gone. Call that success. The rap record, I think I sold maybe 400 out of a thousand. But over the years, people still are asking for that record. So, yeah, let's see what happens. I mean, what would you, what would you kind of deem to be uh, the level of success you felt you achieved with three of the house productions around the early 90s? Like, did you, did you feel like you were? doing well for yourself you not carving a niche no not at all i didn't not at all uh, here's new group records i'm in the office frankie bones he's off to london comes back a few weeks later i happen to be in the office he's there's frankie he's off to london third time it happens he says yo well, every time I go to London, these promoters, they're always asking about you. What? Yeah. 
they're asking about you. They love your track. The promoters are asking about me. But you're over there spinning. I don't get it. Later on, I got it. I was told we, the London Underground, didn't know you were a DJ, which had a lot to do with my sound of my records. Didn't sound like a DJ, a DJ's record. And there was no anything pointing at DJ. It was just like a record, which in my view, that's what I wanted. Because this was the time, early raves, this is 88, and at this time, it's all brand new, just starting. Me, as I made my first record, I was like, graduation, I'm not a DJ, I'm a artist or producer or something, and I, I dropped DJ out of my name. And so no one knew, <laughs> which even till today, I think that's my greatest skill, DJ mixing. Producer, I wouldn't say pat on my back or anything. Writer, okay, I could write some nice music, but uh, as far as if I was to say talent, I'd say he's a talented DJ or mixer. That's, yeah, my look on myself. And you, um, you ended up on the radio, that's correct, you were hosting on a new york station for quite a few years um studied studied uh, radio and tv i could be a disc jockey really live on air i don't know about the tv thing i'm not so handsome or i'm not so in general looking for the gp but anyway studied radio and tv i used to speak very clear and very well english over the years something happened i don't know but um in New York, I, after school, I started with this uh, AM station, and it was an oldie station, made sense, music all day. And yeah, it started as an engineer, and uh, it was a guy, actually pretty famous, Ken Spiderweb. He used to work for New York's best soul station, R&B station. Americans don't say black music. At least they used to not. They used to. They did not used to say this, and it's a terrible thing. But anyway, so BLS, Soul Music Station, top, and he was the morning guy. And I don't even know. I think the hookup was from school. I'm not sure, or from the neighborhood because he lived not far from us. He lived in the, let's say, rich section of Windage where hip hop was born, from a Long Island point. And yeah, he needed an engineer for his radio show, which was a jazz show. And I got that job. <laughs> I know I got that job. And as the engineer, I was like in. And then I got to know the people who worked at the station in general. Because he, he didn't work at that station. He worked on a major station. But he had a jazz show late nights, something like this. And he wasn't even there. It was his tapes. So that's why he needed the engineer which was great. I used to pick up tapes every week, you know what I mean, go to his house and go to my house and get my radio show together, put his radio show, boom, boom, boom. It ended up, the guys like me, they tried, they said, okay, we're going to try you on the air. And I was doing oldies show. And for me, it was, it, was, it was very interesting. Another learning moment. 60s music, 50s music, rock and roll. Very good knowledge of rock and roll. Okay, if you work at a radio station, you should. And I don't mean about the artists, their lives. No, but just music. I heard a lot. I listened. I grooved. You know what I mean? I have some favorites till today. And actually, I'm thinking about dropping something in the club just to see. Because you can play swing, swing house. It's kind of big. But have you ever heard someone drop an original swing record? See? But it's like, to me, I think it could work because if the people are open for that and some do have enough sample, you hear the original. So I'm like, I'm, one day I think I'm going to have enough kahunas to really drop like something. And I mean, for me, the memory, I haven't even heard what I'm thinking of, but the memory of like, yo, you know what I mean? I'm sitting there at the radio station like, boo, first step. When I was, um, when I was looking over like the, the history of Florent, I was only able to kind of acquire like a, a potted um, history or like discography of, of what was going on. So during the 90s, like were you kind of winding down operations or like what was the story? Um, story was that there was a time with no releases was the time of shift 
from actually New York to Europe. Once I came here, I took a few years to get started, I think. And also the the interest. You know, I wasn't really trying to release. I wasn't thinking. I was kind of starting a, a life, you know what I mean? Or ending, starting, ending. It's the same. So um, what got you from New York to Europe? Hard wax records. <laughs> uh, the man used to call me. And acts he first it was a it was a nice request. Hey, I'll be bad. We really want you to come over and play. And I used to get calls from this guy. I'm trying to think, and I think two others who are still in the in the business. And understand my mindset. As I'm making these records, I'm not with a family called the record company. It's a 12 inch. You make it. You hope for the best. Nobody's promoting. You don't have these meetings around what we're going to do, set up this, we got to do that. There was nothing. 0.0, the next time I saw them was if I have a new track that I have interest for this label. So there was no connections. But as these records went out without promotion, I started getting phone calls from Englanders asking about the records or me. Never come over, but just, and I seriously didn't believe this. I was like, who the fuck is this playing? And I did this, I think, to this this guy, Richie. Richard, I can't think of his name, but I think I did this to him once or twice. Because I really thought, because my friends are clowns, you know what I mean? And, you know, it's like anything could happen, and that's something that would happen from a clown friend. And, um, for example, I got a chart, and this dream is real was number whatever. And, you know, it's from England, and all we were tripping, you know what I mean? Like, yo, dad, look at this. And so then the phone call would ring that night. Hello, mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, my friends. And then it was real, once or twice. And I was like, yeah, yeah, you're right. But when Hardwax called, his accent, the Berlin, it was not a friend of mine. I knew this. So, um, yeah, he simply said, yeah, you should come over and we love your music. Play. As a DJ. Now, for me, as a DJ, I wasn't doing anything that had anything to do with my records. Those records, creations. As a DJ, I was playing dance music for a lot of black people and a lot of uh, weddings, parties. Would know how to spin my productions. Not really interested and never thought about spinning my productions. You know what I mean? No. But that was the call. And uh, yeah, he he called more than a few times. And at this time, I was working at... uh, Oh, here's the deal. I got fired from a distribution company. I was on my honeymoon. Dogs. Unbelievable. I quit. Started actually a distribution company with a Daryl Payne. You know Cinnamon? I need you now. He co-produced or produced that. Anyway, me, him, and George Morrell, we worked together for a short time. Saunderson. Kevin Saunderson's first hit. And actually, we had it exclusive in New York, and it would have opened up our doors to some serious business, I believe. But the song got picked up by uh, England, and they said he couldn't release the 12-inch. Well, it didn't kill our business, but our business never got the boom bang, and some months later, it closed. Some months after that, I found myself working at another one, played again, Sam Records, um, distribution company called Win. And there, as I sat, Mark was doing business with him. So, he, again, he, we, we, we would talk. And after a few, I would say months, I think, he talked me into it, where one day he called, and I remember, I was sitting in the office. My manager was stressing me for some reason. <laughs> he called, and it was like, yeah, man, I'll come. Fuck this. I'll come. And I didn't know what that meant, because it was like, I have to take time off from here. Two weeks. It was a 10-day trip. Whatever. You know what I mean? Whatever. It was dangerous territory. Now, in this point, my brother, who took me to the airport, he felt something. He felt very strange. And he was, I'm a crybaby. My brother's not. He was crying. And I was like, yo, man, come on, 10 days, don't trip. This plane is not going to fly down or nobody's going to hide you. You Because that's the only thing I could think of. I never came back. (laughs) Not two years, well, maybe a year later, I stayed. 
And I didn't want to. I, it was no plan. One thing led to another. So the story of your involvement in music over the, well, I guess it was 20 years ago you first got here. Is that right? Mm-hmm. The music was before that, though. Yeah, no, sorry. I, I mean specifically your involvement in music uh, ah, in Berlin. Yeah. No, even from day one it started. I um, Let's say the Hard Wax crew, the Basic Channel crew, I've done recordings with them maybe even before they released. I'm not sure because I don't know the first years when they really came out, but uh, that was one of the reasons why I was asked to come is to get in the studio with these guys. And yeah, we made some interesting stuff. I believe it was offered to Trezor, but it was too gentle, too sweet. So I don't know what else happened, but the tracks still haven't been released. I released one, I think. Yeah, I released one. Sweet record. Um, I slept with her, but didn't sleep with her. It's the name of the song. It's just, it's sweet, and it's a true story. <laughs> I did, and I didn't. <laughs> I didn't want to. <laughs> I changed my mind. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, it was we made some beautiful music and I was in studios uh quite often when I first got here and just making tracks, not songs. We was making sounds and tracks. A few got released. There's B flat that came out. Um no, that was Brooklyn. But I think I met this guy in the studio. There's a song Smile. I made with a guy, Roland 3000. I believe that's who his artist name. Um, yeah, I was in and out of studios, man, and uh, just making stuff. And at the same time, I was actually, once I was here and, you know, knew, I started to build the studio, which even my own, which also, yeah, it was like, okay, don't release. And during this time, I was offered one really commercial project. And actually, I did record it, and when I heard it, I was like, "Nah, man, I, I don't want, I don't. That's I can't even with a different name. I, it's it's bullshit. You know it, I know it. He he liked it though, but that never came out. And yeah, I don't regret it. Could have been big, but not with my name, and I'm not behind it, so there's no need for big. <laughs> I'd rather say small. How would you say that you were um, kind of? appreciation and involvement with house music has changed over the years you've been in Berlin? You know what? With that much thought to it, I'm going to say I start to see what I've inspired come to, to front. Meaning, or saying it another way, it's a lot of full circles. And it took that long, that many years. Those who loved or liked or were inspired by what I did, they took it to the world. As they took it to the world, they kind of took a piece of me. Do you feel in a way that the Rush Hour compilation was a form of this coming full circle? Oh, for sure. That was, that was the banger. And it's very weird and lovely because at the same time that, or a, a, f a few seconds after, here comes Boiler Room. And it was like, okay, here's Rush putting it out, and here's Boiler showing what you do, or part of what you do. So for me, it was just, again, synchronicity in a lovely way, because since then, things are moving. Really, you know, it's, it's moving in a good way, and still in control. How did the compilation come about? I would say the history, it goes back years ago. I did one time in my desperate search for distribution over the years. I called up Rush and I got to speak to Christian. I know I knew of Rush, obviously, but I didn't know, you know, any details. And I was like, hey dude, I need a distribution deal. I'm looking for a distribution deal. And we talked for about a half hour and basically not interested. So he said, or so what he said. Um, but he did show appreciation to some stuff I did. Four or five years later, maybe more, I'm not sure. I think something came across his across Holland, which was this record called House that I did with Gerd. 
and it, I guess actually Gerd, I think he, he was working or is working in a Rush office for his own. And so the record was in his face somehow. And yeah, he called me out the blue. I said, hey, I have interest to release this. <laughs> I said, what's this? He said, all your stuff. And I was like, really? Well, and I was really kind of hesitant and just not thrilled at first. I didn't get it. I've been through this before. Uh, Gigolo was the first. And yeah, it didn't happen. And as it doesn't happen, you know, at the time, again, in the future, you see this is why this didn't happen or this could be why. And thank God this didn't happen. But at the time, it's that frustrated artist. Here I am as a, uh, yeah, as an artist, just making record after record after record after record over years and years and years, but no full album. It was like, whoa. And then I, I, it wasn't even a goal. After a while, it's like, okay, so what? No album. Who cares? People have said, you need a CD in today's society for people to take you serious. I said, that's bullshit. A CD doesn't make me. A record doesn't make me. So I don't feel that. But for people to see, it has to be packaged. And Rush did a great job. And I will say this, Rush did such a great job, in the future, that album will have a big impact, more than it will in this space. I know this. What makes you say that? I saw it. That's the best way to explain it. I saw it without going into details because first... As a seer, my idea doesn't matter. My thought doesn't matter. It's just, it's like you see a picture. I didn't, I didn't make the picture. I saw the picture. And speaking on it, when someone can't fully understand that, it would sound probably a bit arrogant, what I saw. But again, I just saw it. It will happen. It's amazing. There was um, there was a word that kept getting thrown around um, about the time of the release of the compilation, which was underappreciated. Mm. Have you felt underappreciated as an artist down the years? Musically, no. Successfully, financially, yes. And the deal, people who bought my first record, they probably bought the Rush album. They've always been there listening and supporting so for me and these people many of them are music dance music business leaders it's what i i know and just even if you started djing two years ago somehow my music touches people who are very mature listeners nothing to do with age so I have no problems, you know what I mean? It's like I understand it is a bit weird, it is a bit strange, it is a bit different. Those who like it a bit weird, strange, and different, you my, you my peoples, you know what I mean? Because it's the same mindset. Now I see that mindset is growing, and it's growing bigger and bigger, and that has a lot to do with many things. So from that point of view, yeah, I have. Uh, it's cool. It's really cool with me. And then on the other side, I give you example. When uh, when the rent is due, you know what I mean? And at this moment, it's like, phew, even when you have money to pay, that's it. You know what I mean? That's all I have. I don't mean even if you have three times, ten times over, I'm like, that's all I got. I have, I have to be worried about rent and this and nah. From that point of underappreciated, I'm like, because I know it's not that my music was left out. Somebody else is living large from my work. See, that's the difference. If it was just the people who like it, me and you, cool. But when other people are sitting fat and you're not and it's time to pay, it's a bit, mm. you yeah. know. What's next for you? 
I think it's gonna be a shift into the DJ concert world where it's something I've always done without knowing. And I think it very much has to be separated from a club night, normal. But then again, not. Here's the deal. Where I'm going, more and more people are pushing mics to my face, please. Which means, okay, vocal. With the vocal, it's like, uh, yeah, I'm a musician, not a studio musician. I'm a musician who plays. So to actually play my songs, because again... Most of my stuff, hands-on. Could I do that for six minutes? I never tried. <laughs> but it's coming. This is what I see. Um, there's the pod orchestra. Do you know about that? Um, quartet. And it started uh, a dream because I, I just love strings. Always love strings. And years ago, the saxophone with the DJ... The singer with the DJ. Okay, cranking up, way up dimensions. Bring a small orchestra. I got four lovely ladies. Four lovely ladies. Cello between the legs. Two of them. And two on violin. We're coming out. And it's going to be hot, I'm telling you. <laughs> 